0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit Graceontheashley.org. I would invite you if you would to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. We'll give attention this morning to verses 1 through 9 of Luke 13. Luke records these words. He says, There were some present at that very time who told about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent... You will all likewise perish, or those eighteen on whom the tower in Salome fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable: A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, "Look." For three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. It was a sunny Tuesday morning that I can remember quite vividly. It was a sunny Tuesday morning in the Caribbean. Danielle and I were on our our first cruise ever and it was a celebration of our third anniversary. Around 8.15 in the morning, on that morning, I can vividly remember being in our stateroom on the ship And getting up and being prepared or being in the midst of preparations for the day. And I remember glancing up at the small television screen that was there in the little room. And I happened to notice on that Tuesday morning, an airplane crash into one of the World Trade Center towers in New York City. It was September the 11th. Within a couple hours, another plane crashed into the other tower. And before long, we, along with many of you, and so many around the world, watched in abject horror as both towers came crashing down. When all was said and done, nearly 3,000 people lost their lives on that day. People of all ages, people from all places, people of all religions, all dead. In the aftermath of that event, people were desperately trying to explain theologically how something like this could happen. They were asking questions. Where was God? Why would God let something like this happen, so horrific? How could God be good and still allow something so horrendous to occur? How could he be all-powerful, yet he did absolutely nothing to stop this great evil? As people pondered those kinds of questions, many people came to the conclusion after that that there can't be a God. There is no God. Others concluded if there is a God, he certainly isn't present. He's somewhere else doing something else. He can't be paying attention. Others concluded, if there is a God and he's present, he cannot be good. He's a monster or something else. But it just wasn't, wasn't just sort of the culture that was trying to wrestle through these things. Christians wrestled through it too. Christians often struggle to provide coherent answers to those kinds of questions. And quite frequently, we still do before September 11th, 2001, and since then, the world has been plagued with all sorts of tragedies. We live in a day where we have instant access to media all around the world, and so we have almost instant notification when some awful tragedy takes place. All around us, all around the world, things happen. Natural disasters, terrorist attacks, wars Big things, little things, individual tragedies. Still, many Christians do not know how to reconcile those things with their faith. Many don't know how to respond or how we should respond when tragic things happen. When we look at Luke chapter 13 and we begin to dive into these first nine verses, we're going to see Jesus himself provide for us a very clear and direct answer to this very issue. It should do two things for us this morning. It should both equip us to answer those kinds of questions the way he did. It models this for us. And secondly, it should cause us all to take a long, hard look in the mirror a good look of examination in our heart and make sure that when things happen, we're asking the right questions. Now, when we look at chapter 13, the beginning here, uh, this text, I I tried to be really creative in in my outline this week and you'll find this remarkable creativity. We're going to outline the text this way. There's two tragedies, there's one question, there's one answer and one parable. That's your outline. So, if you can... Write that down, two tragedies, one question, one answer, one parable. That's what we'll work with this morning. If you pay attention to the text, you realize that that early on, we're getting introduced to two tragic things that happened, at least in some proximity to when Jesus is having this conversation with the people to whom he's speaking. We're told at the beginning of verse 1, at that very time, there were some folks who were present who told him about one of these things. That at that very time is important to us because it connects our text this morning with the text that Pastor Kelly presented to us last week. This text directly follows on the heels of that. It is one of the places, just for note... When you look at your Bible as you have it in your lap this morning, where there is a, a chapter break that's in a really inopportune place, because it's, it, it gives the impression that there's a change that takes place here, but there's actually not. Beginning of chapter 13 is it just a continual flow from the end of chapter 12. Jesus is still talking about the same issues. He's still talking to the same people. It's still an extension of that same discourse. So we want to think in terms of we're still having the same conversation that we looked at last week. It just turns in a little different direction. So at that very time, it's a continuation. Now, we don't know exactly what prompted this, uh, this, this bringing up of this tragic thing that took place in the temple. Maybe some of, some of the congregation there were still sort of processing Jesus' previous comments in chapter 12, earlier in this discourse, about interpreting the times where he challenged them. And he said to them, you remember, yeah, Pastor Kelly taught us just recently that that he says to them you you know how to look at the sky and interpret the weather. You can look at the sky and tell what's getting ready to happen with the weather, but you can't interpret the times in which you're living. He was saying to them you you can you can tell the complicated things that are happening with the weather, but the son of God is right in front of you and you have no concept of what's really going on spiritually. Maybe this idea of interpreting the times sort of Sparked their mind to think about this event that happened that they couldn't make sense of Maybe this was some sort of a, a sign that they should be paying attention to I don't know that for sure And it could be that they're still processing the very last thing he said When he had told them about this idea of it's important for you or smart for you or wise for you To, to settle your debts before you get to court Because when you get to court there's going to be a judgment And there's going to be no settlement at that point There's just judgment The wise thing for you to do is to settle all your debts before you get there. Maybe that's what they're thinking about. Maybe they're thinking about judgment. And they're wondering about this event that takes place. Something that he said provoked their thoughts toward this recent tragedy that took place in the first century. Both this and the one Jesus then refers to in the same context were clearly well-known events to the people to whom he's speaking. Just like if I had begun this sermon by giving you the date, September 11th, 2001, you would have all immediately known the context to which I'm speaking historically. Those events were clearly well-known to Jesus' audience. For us, they've been lost in history. But nevertheless, they were very, very vivid images for his hearers. And so the first tragedy that's brought up is brought up by someone in the crowd. They they tell us about this event that's only recorded here in the Bible. In fact, it's not recorded anywhere else in history. And it's an event where, apparently, Pilate, the Roman governor at the time, had done something horrendous. It wasn't out of character for Pilate, the Roman governor, to do horrendous things. That was the kind of guy he was. He was a ruthless and vile governor who sort of kept the, the, the Roman peace over the over Judea and he was a terrible individual he ruled from 26 AD when Tiberius put him in charge there until he was deposed later but his rule was marked by cruelty and by all sorts of brutality he had no problem killing anybody that got in his way or anybody that was a threat to him he did all sorts of horrible things to provoke the Jews for instance at one point he robbed the temple treasury in order to build an aqueduct in the city and incense the the people Uh, And so it it was no surprise for him to provoke religious people. Galilee, we're talking about Galileans here, was somewhat of a hotbed for revolutionaries and for rebels. It was outside of Pilate's jurisdiction, but they were the kind of people who caused trouble with the Romans. And so perhaps what took place here, again, we don't have a historical record of this, is that Pilate chose to capitalize on his opportunity when some of the Galileans came into his jurisdiction in Jerusalem to worship at the temple. Apparently, some came to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, to offer sacrifices there, because the temple in Jerusalem is the only place where sacrifices were offered. And while they were there, Pilate took this opportunity to send some murderers into the temple to slaughter them while they were in the act of worship horrendous event. These people had simply got up in the morning and went to church to worship, much like you did this morning. And while they were in the midst of their worship, they were murdered in the building. Brutally. We're told that not only Was it a brutal event, but it was a sacrilegious event because in the midst of the the murder of these Galileans in the temple, their blood literally dripped down and mingled in with the blood from the sacrifices that were being made. I don't know how to make a modern equivalent of this event. Perhaps it would be the equivalent of us being in the midst of a worship or sharing in the Lord's Supper, and someone comes in and starts killing all that are in the room. It was that kind of a tragic event that took place. It was scandalous. Hard to believe any would do it. It was absolutely appalling to the Jews. How could they make any sense of an event like that? Their theology was a works-based system of theology, and we've talked about this quite frequently in Luke's gospel. In their system, people earn God's favor by doing righteous things and by doing religious works and religious activities. Unrighteousness and a lack of religious devotion earn God's wrath, but righteousness and religious devotion earn God's favor. So this event had no place to fit in their theological grid because here we have seemingly righteous people who are in the act of doing religious activities and yet they're murdered right in the temple. How do you make sense of that in a Jewish works-based system? It's very difficult. And they couldn't make sense of it. That's why they bring it up to Jesus here. They want his weigh-in on how this is possible. And Jesus responds to them with an answer, and then he responds to them with another tragedy that took place that they were also all familiar with. He says, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed. Again, another event that's only recorded here in Luke's gospel, not recorded to our knowledge anywhere else in first century history. But Siloam was a well-known place in the southeastern part of Jerusalem. You may recall that later on, we find Jesus doing some miracles near the, the pool, There in Siloam, there was an aqueduct. If you've ever been to Israel, you may see, go and visit where Hezekiah's tunnel was. And Hezekiah's tunnel brought water from outside of the city into the pool of Siloam. And so it was a well-known area and a well-known place. And there was a well-known aqueduct that that supplied the city with water. But it seems on some recent day that in that location, tragedy struck when nobody knew it was going to happen. A tower of some sort fell and crushed 18 people in the city. If you can just imagine the bustling part of the city known as Saloon. people are, are just sort of going about their daily routine in Salome. They're They're conducting business. They're visiting family members. They're making a quick run to the market. And people are just doing all the things that you do on a normal day. And they're buzzing around on the city when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a tower falls and just crushes 18 people right there in public. crushed to death it must have been a shocking event I mean can you imagine the people who were walking around who had just passed by the tower or were just walking up to it when it happened and yet it happened And the same problem. The Jewish people were having the same problem. How do you reconcile that with a works-based system that says righteous works and religious devotion earns God's favor and unrighteous living and irreligious devotion or a poor religious devotion earns God's judgment and His wrath? How does that kind of an event fit or make sense with that kind of a theological grid? And that's why Jesus brings it up. Now the two tragedies that are brought up here have some similarities and they have some differences that are worth noting. The similarities between what happened in the temple and what happened in Siloam are, as far as I can see, thus. First, they're both sudden. Is that fair to say? They were both sudden events that happened without warning. People were going about their normal routine. Some people were going to worship. Other people were going about the city doing their normal thing. There was no indication that something out of the ordinary was going to happen. But all of a sudden, tragedy struck. Nobody had warning. The people who got up that day and the Galileans who went to worship had no idea that that was going to be the day of their death. The people who were crushed under that tower had no idea when they were making a run to the market or going on a business run or going to visit family members that today was going to be the day a tower was going to fall on their head and kill them. It was sudden. It had no warning. Both events were also unusual ways to die. Slaughtered in church, a tower falling on your head. Just sort of unusual ways for people to exit this earth. And then both are really hard to explain theologically. There was no easy explanation. Both of them raise the question that we often call the problem of evil. If God is good, then why do bad things, tragic things seem to happen, particularly to seemingly good people? If God is all-powerful, then why doesn't he prevent things like this from happening if he can And how do we reconcile those two things? Now, there are some differences between the two tragedies. We notice the nationalities are different. In the first tragedy, it's Galileans. The one Jesus brings up, it's Jews. It's Jewish citizens of Siloam. And that may be intentional on Jesus' part because we know from studying Luke's Gospel already that racism runs deep in the first century and in the culture. So it may be that Jesus is taking away from them the opportunity to say, well, those are just... Galileans they deserved it so he gives them another tragedy where Jews are involved so they can't escape the problem that way so there's a difference in the nationality the first were Galileans the second were Jews from Jerusalem there's also a difference in the cause the first one was caused by someone Pilate ordered the murder of these people the other one would fall under the category of things that we tend to call natural disasters right Nobody directly seems to be responsible. A tower just fell. In the first event, the first tragedy, there was an act of intentional evil that was intentionally perpetrated. The second one was an unpredictable, seemingly random event. The first, there were people who were who were targeted specifically because of who they are. The second one, the people it seems to be just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. In either case, both of these events bring up similar issues. And when we smash the two things together, the composite sort of composite picture we get is a picture that sort of paints an umbrella under which all sorts of tragedies and awful things can fit. Essentially, every... Every every tragedy that we see today is closely related in some way, shape, or form to one of these two kinds of things. Everything from tsunamis to school shootings, everything from terrorist attacks to massive highway pileups are related in one way or another to one of these two types of tragedies that are brought up in this text. And just like in Jesus' day, people struggle to make sense of these kind of events in light of God. If God is good, why does he allow tragedies to befall good people? If God is all-powerful, why doesn't he stop the terrorists before they fly into the building? These are the questions that are raised in light of tragedy. And Jesus brings up a question in light of these two tragedies that are mentioned He said in verse 2 and then in verse 4b, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? And then, after talking about the tower, do you think that these were worse offenders, these Jews were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Jesus asked this question because he knows what his audience is thinking. He knows exactly what they're thinking. There's only one way that they can reconcile tragedies like these with what they believe about God, and what they believe about faith. The only category that they can find to make sense of something like this is, the people who were the victims had to be horrible sinners. That's the only thing that would make sense to them. And so Jesus asked the question, and he brings that issue out in the light. Is that what you're thinking? Is that what you're thinking? That these Galileans had to be the worst of the worst Galileans? Therefore, this horrible thing that happened in the temple was God's judgment on them because of their sin. In other words, they had it coming. Is that what you think? That these Jews who had a tower fall on top of them and crushed them were the worst of the worst in Siloam? And this was, this act that seems random was actually God's judgment on them for their sins because of how horrible of a sinner they are? That was the only way they could make this fit in their theological grid. They had to assume that these folks were harboring some sort of horrible sin. Otherwise, how could God allow people to be murdered worshiping in church? It had to be that they were terrible sinners and God was judging them. This was the only way that they could make sense of any of this. It's not the first time that we run into this kind of thinking in the Bible, and it's not the last time we run into it. You may remember from your reading of the Old Testament that this same kind of thinking pops up back all the way back in Job's day. Do you remember Job? Do you remember Job? You can nod your head, and I know you're awake. If I see movement, that's a good thing. Yeah, you remember Job in the Old Testament, don't you? We're told Job was a godly man, and we're told that right out of the chute at the beginning of the book. Yet all sorts of calamity comes into this man's life. Tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, right? He he loses his children. He loses his wealth. He loses his health. All of that, like, boom, 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 in a very short amount of time. Talk about a tragedy magnet. That was Job. The only thing he doesn't lose is his wife, and I'm sure the whole time he wished he had lost her. The only thing that was disposable that he could have gotten rid of that he wanted to be gone was his nagging wife. And that's the only thing that's left. And Job struggles to understand. I'm a godly man and I'm trying to live a righteous life. How do I make sense of all this tragedy that's taking place around me and to me? And while he's working through this, he's got some friends that come alongside to try and be an encouragement. In Job 22, one of his friends by the name of Eliphaz, the Timonite, comes along, and he sits down next to Job, and he puts his arm around him, or maybe he doesn't because he looks pretty rough. And here's what he says to him in verses 4 and 5 of Job 22. He says, is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. And then he goes on to list all the sins that he thinks Job must be hiding. Job, I know you say you're a godly man. Is it for your godliness that God's bringing judgment in your life? That's a sarcastic question. And he lists all these sins in chapter 22 that he thinks Job must be hiding. And then he says in verse 23, finally, if you'll just return to the Almighty, you'll be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents. He's saying, Job, come on, man, just fess up. Just fess up, get right with God, stop hiding your sin, come clean, return to God, and if you'll do all that, he'll let up. And the underlying assumption that he's working off of is what? Job, you must deserve this. It must be this sin in your life that the rest of us can't see that you're hiding. There is no other explanation for why God would bring this kind of calamity into your world. You see, Eliphaz has the same jewish theological grid that the people that jesus was speaking to had they couldn't explain it any other way john chapter 9 we run into it again a more familiar passage jesus and his disciples are walking along and they come across a man who's born blind do you remember what they ask jesus when they come across this blind man by the side of the road they ask him "Yeah, yeah whose sin is responsible for this Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It was a foregone conclusion to them that somebody sinned, that this that this blindness was God's judgment on sin. The only real question was, whose sin was it, his or his parents? And it posed a particularly hard question because the man was born blind. So they're trying to figure out if he was born blind. like the, the, it, that, that was already happening when he was born, before he had a chance to do much of anything. So they're wrestling with how could God's judgment be on his sin when he's born with the judgment in their mind. Maybe it was his parents. And Jesus answers the question, it wasn't that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus makes it clear. You're wrong. The question is wrong. Your assumption is wrong. It wasn't his sin. It wasn't his parents' sin. This this blindness serves an eternal purpose that you don't know anything about. He's blind so that I could come along this day and glorify God by healing him. His blindness was for the glory of God. And here in chapter 13, Jesus raises the question and he answers it in a very similar fashion. Here's his answer in verses three and five. Is it that these people were worse sinners? These Galileans were the worst sinners? Is it that these citizens of Siloam were the worst of the worst? Jesus says, no. It's an emphatic no. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus' answer to the question could not be more clear. No. In both of these cases, This did not happen because these were the worst sinners. That is absolutely a wrong assessment of what's going on. And if that's your conclusion, then you're way, way off. These tragedies did not happen because the victims were the worst sinners. Absolutely not. And then he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And at first, that that doesn't sound like much of an answer. At first, you're going, what is he talking about here? But what he's saying, in essence, is this. You think that these people must be really, really bad sinners for this to happen. Because otherwise, you can't explain why God would allow such tragedies to befall good people. Why would God allow bad things to happen to good people? So your only conclusion is that these had to be bad people. But instead of trying to find an explanation for their death, you ought to be trying to find an explanation for your life. Unless you repent, you will also perish. Now Jesus is making a subtle shift in his language and in his emphasis here. He's making a shift from talking about physical death to victims in the disaster to speaking about eternal death in hell to his listeners, but he's using the same language. He's saying, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. He's saying you're focused on the wrong question. The wrong question is why did this awful thing happen to these unsuspecting people? The right question is why hasn't some awful thing already happened to you? The great scandal is not that God killed good people tragically in this event. The great scandal is the Holy God of the universe continues to let you live. That's the scandal. None of us are good people. None of us are good. We're all sinners who've broken God's law, and the Bible makes very clear that the wages of our sin is what? It's death. And we can never do enough good to overcome the debt of our sin. We can never earn God's favor. And the result of the fact that we're all sinners and that our sin has earned us death is that God owes us nothing in this life except death. That's what he owes us. True justice for you and for me and for anybody to whom Jesus was speaking, true justice means instant death. That's justice. We all die physically and spiritually god would be just in killing you and killing me the moment we sinned the first time and he would be just in sending us to an eternal hell because that's what we earn and that's what we deserve the fact that i'm still alive today and the fact that you're still alive today it's not a reflection of my righteousness or your righteousness. It's a true reflection of God's remarkable mercy and his grace. Every one of us is living on the grace and mercy of Almighty God. The scandal is not that God is being unjust and letting good people be killed tragically. The scandal is that a holy God continues to let bad people live and enjoy his creation. It's a scandal of grace, not a scandal of injustice. Oh, the mercy and grace of God. The real question isn't, why did these people get killed in such a tragic way? The real question is, why has God allowed people who are unrepentant like you to still breathe? Unless we repent while he's still extending that mercy and that grace and that patience, we will perish. We will get what we deserve. Physical death in some way at some time and an eternity apart from Christ in a place called hell designed for the devil and his demons. Unless you repent, he says to him, you'll perish not only will you die but you'll perish forever you're asking the wrong question you're focusing on the wrong thing you think it's scandalous that God allows tragedy to befall seemingly good people the real scandal is that a holy God lets ungodly unrepentant people live and get away with it and he doesn't take them out immediately scandal of grace and he says unless you repent you're going to perish repentance has been a theme that we've run across several times in matthew's gospel excuse me luke's gospel already and we've said it time and again but the idea of repentance is simply to turn around and go in a different direction it's to turn away from one thing and to turn toward another and that's exactly what Jesus' audience needed to do. They needed to turn away from their religion of human works. They needed to turn away from their sinful habits and their sinful behaviors and their sinful attitudes. They needed to repudiate those things. They needed to denounce those things. And they needed to actively turn away from them and turn toward Christ and trust in him to save them. That's what they needed to do. Their only hope that something horrendous didn't be- wouldn't befall them was that they repent. We're on the other side of the cross from Jesus' audience, aren't we? We have a fuller story than they had. We know the full story of what Jesus would do. We know the full story of what he would do and accomplish on the cross where he would bleed and he would die and he would pay the wages of our sin. He would die, he would be buried, and he'd be raised again on the third day. And that he'd ascend to the right hand of the Father where he... He rules and reigns right now. And that he would make a promise that he's going to return and bring his people back to where he is. For us to repent is to place our faith in him and what he accomplished on the cross where he paid for our sin with his life. Repentance is more than regret. It's more than just regretting the consequences of sin in our life repentance is more than just remorse it's more than just being sorry for our sinful behavior it's more than just a general feeling of guilt that we've done wrong guilt is an actual change of mind and change of heart and active turning from sin and toward Christ Wayne Grudem says it this way he says repentance is a, a heartfelt sorrow for sin a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and to walk in obedience to Christ. I think it's a good definition. Charles Spurgeon defines it this way. He says repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we've committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. Virgin captures really the holistic part of man in repentance. That it's it's something that happens in our mind, a change of mind. It's a change of affections. It's a change of our actions. It's a change, a turning of our whole self from sin and self and self righteousness and works based faith toward Christ and trusting in Him to save us. We see this theme all throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah, in Isaiah 55, verse 7 said this, let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he'll have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. Let the wicked forsake his way and let him turn to the Lord. That's repentance. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've never repented of your sin. That's what you need to do. You need to hear the words of Christ. Repent or you'll perish. And you need to listen to the words of Isaiah. What you need to do is forsake your way and turn toward the Lord. It's the only way to be saved. Repentance was the message that we began with in the book of Luke. We heard John the Baptist preaching it at the very beginning. We've heard Jesus mention it before. And here he goes again. And when we move toward the history of the church in the book of Acts, it's over and over and over. Repent and believe. What about you? Have you ever repented of your sin and turned to Christ? Have you ever owned up to your rebellion against God? Have you ever admitted it really is what it is? It's not just a small problem. It's not just a little thing. It's not just some little things that you do. It's a cosmic offense against the holy God who made you. And what you've earned by it is death and eternity in hell. Have you owned your sin before God that way? Have you confessed it to him? Have you told him, God, I want to turn away from this kind of stuff. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to live for you. I want to trust in Christ to save me. If you've done that, then the Bible says that you have eternal life. That you'll die one day, but you will not perish. If you haven't done that, then you don't know Christ. And there's a threat hanging over your head that you have no idea about. Jesus closes this text with a parable that at first glance, it may seem like he's talking about something else. But in fact, it's just an illustration that further illustrates the same exact point and drives it home a little different way. Is a parable about a fig tree planted in a vineyard. A parable is just a fictional story. We've talked about that a few times. It normally just makes one central theological meaning, and that holds true with this particular one. Jesus' primary listeners here are the Israelites. And so he uses this parable to sort of describe where they are in this picture of repentance. And just to sort of give you an abbreviated version of it as we wrap up our time here this morning, let me tell you what the symbols are in this parable so it'll make sense to you. The man in the parable is representative of God. The fig tree is representative of Israel, God's people. And the fruit that he's talking about is representative of repentance and its outward. And it's outward sort of manifestations that come with it. So the idea here is that a, a man had a fig tree, planted it in a vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he didn't find any fruit. And so he says to the vine dresser, I've come three years, every year I check this fig tree for fruit, and I don't find any fruit on it. Cut the thing down, it's useless. It's a waste of the ground that it's planted in. A normal fig tree would have borne fruit within the first year. A normal uh, a normal fig tree, if it hasn't borne fruit in three years, it's never going to bear fruit, and cutting it down is the normal and right thing to do. But here, in this parable, there's a vine dresser, and the vine dresser says to the man, just give it another year. I'll, I'll work with the soil a little bit. I'll put some fertilizer on it, and let's give it one more year and see if it can bear some fruit. And if it doesn't in the next year, then let it be cut down. What's all that about? This tree is on its last chance. It has one year. At the end of one year, it will bear fruit or it will be cut down. It's on borrowed time. God had uniquely planted Israel. He had chosen them, he had established them, and he had loved them. He had related to them in very, very unique ways compared to all the other nations. He called them his people. He had given them every single advantage. He had given them the law. He had given them the prophets. He had given them his particular love. He had given them every advantage that they needed You would have expected them to be the most righteous nation on the planet, yet they continually, time and time and time again, rebelled against him. And God had continually over history told them, if they don't repent, judgment was coming. It's imminent. And yet God had given them one last chance, one last chance, when he sent his own son, Jesus, the Messiah, to come. In this parable, this is the last ditch effort. The loosening of the dirt and the fertilizing is God sending Jesus. He came to look them in the eye, He came to teach them directly. He came to do miracles in their very presence. He came to plead with them that they might repent and bear the fruit of repentance. They should have immediately embraced Jesus as God's Son, the Messiah. They should have repented of their sin, and they should have entrusted their lives to Him. But instead, they listened to Him teach, they saw all His miracles, and they rejected Him. They rejected Him. They bore absolutely no fruit of repentance whatsoever. God had been remarkably patient with Israel. But his patience was coming to an end. They were on borrowed time. They were in the last year of opportunity. And we know the rest of the story, don't we? Within 40 years, a nation is cut down, destroyed, brutalized, and scattered. The message is the same. God's patience has an end. You better settle your accounts with him by repenting because you never know when the judgment is going to come. You never know when you're going to be in the last year of your opportunity. You never know when you're going to be walking through town and a tower is going to fall on your head. You never know when you might be sitting in church when people bust in the doors and kill you while you're worshiping. It's best to settle your accounts right now. If I could summarize all the takeaways from this, I'll just give them to you in a list because I think they're all obvious. Here's what we take away from this. We're mortal. You're mortal and I'm mortal. We will all die. I have a friend who's a doctor and I, I told him one time, I said, look, you guys are all the same. You all have the same track record. You lose all your patients. Every one of them dies. Every one of your patients dies. It's true, Right? every doctor eventually loses all of his patients because they die. We're all mortal. You are not going to live forever. And on the heels of that, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. I mean, if the, if the first part of this, this, this text that tells us anything, it tells us we are not guaranteed a tomorrow. And right on the heels of that, it's clear that our righteousness does not in some way insulate us from earthly tragedy. Jesus makes that abundantly clear. Bad things happen in the lives of godly people. And sometimes godly people die in terrible ways. But for godly people who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, death isn't the worst thing that can happen. It ushers us into the very presence of Christ forever. And that's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? That we don't have to be afraid of tragedy because tragedy is a doorway into the presence of the Lord. But we're not exempt, which drives home the main point. There's only one way to eternal life. And that's to repent and trust in Jesus Christ to save you. Listen, this section of Luke's gospel has been heavy. It's been very heavy. It's been very sort of in your face and challenging. And there's a, a fearful component to it. And I think Jesus intended it to land that way on his audience and I think he intends for it to land that way on us too. Those truths are real. And we can live oblivious to it and act like we have all the time in the world. You think that there's always going to be time tomorrow or next week to get right with God or next month or next year or when this happens or when that happens. There isn't any time. There's no time. The only time you have is right now. And the message Jesus would have you here this morning is repent or you too will perish. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to run to him today. You need to embrace him today. You need to confess your sin to him today. You need to turn from that sin and look to him and what he did on the cross in your place to save you today. You need to settle it before your day in court arrives. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I don't know how to say this in any more direct or clear way than you've said it. This is serious. This is not jokes. It's not fun and games. This is heavy stuff, thinking about life and death, thinking about tragic things, And thinking about eternal perishing in hell. There's a part of us that would just like to brush this stuff off because it's heavy and it's hard and it's deep and it's frightening and we just don't want to deal with it. The problem is we're now all accountable because we've all heard it. And we have to do something. And I pray for every soul that is in this room that what they would do about it today is repent and turn to Jesus Christ. Turn to you, Jesus, their Lord and their Savior, that they would see your blood running down the cross, that they would see your outstretched arms, that they would see you breathing your last breath, dying to pay the wages of their, of your, of their sin, and that they would run to you in faith repentance today. Lord, make that a reality, I pray for your glory and your glory alone. Amen.